After experiencing the transformative power of a regular meditation practice, it's natural to feel inspired to share this gift and guide others on their own journey of discovery through meditation. Join Buddhist teacher David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell, comedian and creator of the Netflix animated series The Midnight Gospel, for a free online event on Tuesday, May 7th at 6 p.m. Eastern Time. They'll discuss the profound practices of mindfulness Dharma Moon's renowned Mindfulness Meditation Teacher Training Program. Get certified by Dharma Moon to teach meditation, lead group practice sessions, and work with individual students. Visit dharmamoon.com slash beherenow for more info and to reserve your spot for the free online event with David Nickturn and Duncan Trussell. Welcome to the Metta Hour Podcast with Sharon Salzberg, where Buddhist wisdom meets everyday life. This podcast is brought to you by the Be Here Now Network. If you're interested in supporting this podcast, visit www.beherenownetwork.com slash Sharon. Enjoy listening. Hi, I'm Sharon Salzberg, and I'm so happy today to be, to be speaking with my longtime friend and colleague, Roshi Joan Halifax. Roshi Joan is a Buddhist teacher, a Zen priest, an anthropologist, and pioneer in the field of end-of-life care. She's founder, abbot, and head teacher of Upaya Institute and Zen Center in Santa Fe, New Mexico, where we teach together every year. Roshi Joan received her PhD in medical anthropology in 1973, and has lectured on the subject of death and dying at many academic institutions and medical centers around the world. She is the author of many books, including her latest, Standing at the Edge, Finding Freedom Where Fear and Courage Meet, which was released on May 1st, 2018. Welcome, Roshi Joan. Thank you. I'm very happy that uh, we're talking now, and also I'm, I'm, I'm happy I get to see you soon. I know, that's so fantastic. It is really great. Yeah. And, you know, massive congratulations. What's that? We should should make make a a habit habit of of this. We definitely should. I'm glad you're coming east in August. Thanks to you. (laughs) No, that's great. And really massive congratulations on your book. It's so beautiful looking. And the content is so powerful. This is great. Oh, thank you, Sharon. I, you know, we are really lucky. We ended up with a wonderful publishing house, Flatiron, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and wonderful people. And um, uh, you know, I haven't gone back and read the book in its current form. You know, I have this physical object. I saw it only a week ago when I was in Seattle, so I saw it for the first time, and it was so physically beautiful. Mm. Um, but I haven't. I haven't had the nerve to actually open it up and read it. <laughs> did you do an audio version of it? I did an audio version, 26 and a half hours in the studio. <laughs> I, God. That tiny little I, studio in the Flatiron Building or a different one? No, no. I did it uh, in a wonderful studio here in New Mexico, Cabby uh-huh. Kapikoff. Fabulous. Totally set up for, you know, reading books and wonderful uh, young man who was the engineer. But, I, you know, it's one of those things where I hadn't read my other books. Uh, somebody else read them. Very, I'm sure, wonderful people. But they were so speedy 
mm-hmm. in reading. <laughs> and um, I was kind of glad they asked me to read the book, that, you know, uh, uh, Flatiron asked me to read the book. Mm-hmm. But I was also like, oh, I, I know this is going to be onerous. And it was, you know, fortunately, the young man who was the engineer was really kind and patient and also the place was very pleasant to be in but you know i mean there's no windows of course and you're in this mm-hmm, small mm-hmm. nice little room mm-hmm. but uh, it's kind of strange to be reading aloud your own work mm-hmm. and um trying to imagine you know while in this kind of gray room with a boom mic hanging over you. <laughs> and, you know, you're at the same time kind of recalling writing it and recalling yeah. the experiences you're writing about. And it, yeah. It's a fascinating experience. I, I'm i not one to produce uh, a book a year, so I don't think I'll be doing this again <laughs> for quite a while. <laughs> yeah, it's a lot of work. Unlike you, my dear. Well, yeah. <laughs> I don't know how that happened. It's some, somehow it's happening. Speaking of my most recent book, I want to tell a story which is really about you. You've heard me tell it uh, before we go on to your book. Um, so my, my most recent book was called Real Love, the same publisher as Roshi Jones, um, Flatiron. And I was incredibly late turning it in. I finally um, turned it in. I think it was two years late and one day early. I was very proud of the one day early. And uh, when I turned it in, I got an away message from my publisher. And I thought, hey, you know, like, could you give me another three weeks or something? And Finally, you know, he came back from vacation and and he read the book and he wrote me and he said, oh, you know, I really love the book. And the part of the book I love the most was when you quote Roshi Joan saying something like, don't force yourself to think of the traumas of your life as gifts. Think of them as givens. And first I thought, wow, that's a fantastic quote. Then I thought, that's odd. His favorite part of my book I didn't even write. You know, Roshi wrote it. There you go. But actually, I wanted to say that as a context for uh, – because sometimes when you talk about these qualities, um, it's very hard not to over-idealize or, or, or seek uh, perfection in them, you know, and think I have to feel a certain way. And, and really, it's a journey. No kidding. You know, I'm in the middle of this training um, of clinicians – on care of the dying that we offer here at UPI every year. And, uh, you know, the room is filled with these bodhisattvas who um, are, uh, you know, have dedicated their lives to compassionate care, but are super stretched and stressed. Mm -hmm. I have learned so much from people in the healthcare profession, but also people who are working with refugees and in the prison system and, you know, humanitarians of every stripe. It's been um, quite uh, a journey uh, learning, you know, about the power of these qualities that are essential for us as human beings to maintain our humanity. At the same time, there's a shadow part to certain Mm -hmm. of these qualities that I write about that um, cause a lot of suffering for those mm-hmm. who want mm-hmm. to serve. So maybe I'm going to quote uh, from your book, and we can go through these qualities perhaps one by one and uh, talk about the, almost like the purified form, maybe you'd say, or the uh, kind of boundless form, and then talk about the shadow side as well, mm-hmm. which would be great. So here's 
uh, your quotation, which says five, in, I guess you're talking about five internal and interpersonal qualities that are keys to a compassionate and courageous life, and without which we cannot serve, nor can we survive. And the first of these qualities is altruism. So I don't know if you'd mm. like to start there. Well, <clears throat> yeah, this is um, this is that capacity that uh, we mobilize uh, very naturally uh, when we're uh, in the presence of someone or some being who's suffering, um, or we're aware of a whole world that's suffering or a country that's suffering, and um, we respond in a seamless way to benefit the other, um, and it's at some cost to ourselves, and it's fundamentally selfless. You know, it's like, Sharon, you and I and anybody listening to this podcast, we wouldn't be here save for the altruism of our parents. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. No matter how complicated our parents mm -hmm. were, still, um, they didn't let us die on the spot. Mm -hmm. Nice of them. Yep. But, um, you know, when altruism causes uh, mental and physical harm to the altruist, then um, it's tending into what's called pathological altruism. And, you know, pathological altruism can also harm the person you're trying to serve. Mm. It, it can also harm the institution that you're trying to serve or that you're serving in. So it's a, it's a very rich area. And I know you know what it's like because mm -hmm. um, you work, you know, in people who serve those who are subjected to domestic violence. And um, you mm -hmm. work with all kinds of people in the service professions. And, you know, with the cost of burnout, um, the, the cost of uh, so much empathy that um, you're, you're, in a certain way, uh, contracting uh, the illness of the very people you're serving. Mm -hmm. And um, so pathological altruism is something, I, you know, I've encountered it myself. How about you? Oh, yeah, definitely. <laughs> and one of the quotes I have from you is, uh, altruism at its best is a radical expression of connection, concern, inclusivity, and a sense of responsibility regarding the well-being of others. It is about consciously not robbing others of their autonomy by helping or fixing them. Wow. Did I write that? You did write that. It's fantastic. <laughs> and it's very subtle. Yeah, it is. Because you're not urging apathy, I'm sure. No. No, I think... Um, uh, one of the ways that we, you know, altruists get off the track is by robbing others of their autonomy. Mm -hmm. And um, that's this process, you know, of, of uh, perceiving the other as not having the resources to actually um, bloom themselves. Mm -hmm. I remember um, Zainab Salbi and I were once speaking at the same a conference, and she was the founder of uh, Women for Women International, which is one of those organizations where um, you sign up and you get a person to write to a woman in some war-torn country. And um, she she was talking about meeting somebody in Afghanistan and coming back and telling the woman's story and telling her story and telling her story. And she said at one point she realized that uh, she was only talking about her suffering. She never mentioned her resources. Like the woman was an attorney or the woman had some education or she had 
this ability to care for others or whatever it was. And, you know, so we can also kind of go down the rabbit hole that way. Yeah. Yeah. I, I think that um, uh, often we underestimate others. And somehow, you know, seeing the truth of a person's challenges, difficulty, trauma, um, is really important, but at the same token, it's important to also look into their gold, so to speak, mm-hmm. to see, you know, wow, this person somehow made it through a war. What were the qualities that made it possible for her to survive? Mm-hmm. You also write, another part of altruism is to explore how our culture, race, gender, sexual orientation, education, class, and personal history create biases and values that shape our behaviors, and how our privilege and power relative to others influence the expectations we have about serving others. Wow. What did you mean by that? That's really true. Well, you know, part of it, um, uh, I think later in in the section that you read, uh, just read, I go into um, a piece around gender and uh-huh. uh, how, um, in a certain way, um, there is a gender bias toward altruism in women. And uh, Tanya Singer indicates that gender bias shows up in terms of neural architecture. Uh-huh. Um, and I've met many men who are great altruists. But um, that women as... You know, if you will, as mothers, even though you and I don't have kids, but um, mm-hmm. we live in a culture where um, the kind of uh, motherly heart or grandmotherly heart is something that's very associated with uh, women. And um, although I've met many men um, who have motherly hearts and grandmotherly mm-hmm. hearts, but that it's a cultural expectation for women to actually manifest um, uh, more selflessness, mm-hmm. more altruism than often it is for men. And this is not necessarily the best thing in the world. Um, I think we should expect all beings, all people, to be altruists, mm-hmm. men mm-hmm. and women. And I think that also women, um, my mother was a really good example of this. Uh, she um, uh, just dedicated her life to being a volunteer. She was, mm-hmm. you know, in the Second World War, a gray lady, so she worked in Biltmore Hospital, taking care of the wounded who came home from the war. And then um, the day she died, she was a pink lady mm-hmm. at Banner Elks Hospital, um, delivering books and magazines to dying people. And then, then she died that night. Mm-hmm. Um, but her whole life was, you know, she was a volunteer. She always uh, gravitated toward those who were less fortunate, who were less resourced. Hmm. And part of her gravitation, um, which I think influenced me uh, unconsciously, was that she had some kind of uh, social identity as a good person. Hmm. And um, that was as... Uh, distinct from my father, who uh, had a social identity and probably personal uh, as well, as a man of accomplishment mm-hmm, mm-hmm. and um, successful. Uh, you know what I mean? Yeah. 
and so her her sense of uh, agency, of identity, of power, of meaningfulness, all came out of this uh, need to be appreciated for being such a good person, a caring person. And I think, uh, you know, it was funny, Sharon, when I was, um, I practiced with a Korean Zen teacher named De Sansanin. Mm-hmm. And um, uh, uh, in a Dharma combat once, he asked me, um, uh, what, if, what if, you know, what, what had I been doing? Something like that. And I started to list, make this long list of all the good things I've been doing to help others. And then he, he kind of hit me with his mm. Zen stick, and he said, oh, bad bodhisattva. <laughs> Which I thought, oh, thanks a lot. But I had a kind of, it was just sort of a wake-up call. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I excuse me, I, um, I, uh, I kind of got what he was saying, that somehow mm. um, I had my identity in helping others um, had uh, a quality of ego in it that was not great. Mm-hmm. And I hadn't recognized it. And I was all also, uh, you know, which evolved later in the conversation with him, I was kind of hogging the stage with my goodness. And not <laughs> possible for others. Let me tell you one more story about how good I am. Get in the act. Yeah. You know. I was like, oh, I felt quite chastened. (laughs) I was like, oh, wow. Thank you. Yes, he was very good at doing, actually. Uh, So let's move on to the next quality, which is empathy, which you mentioned a bit before and its relationship to altruism. Um, Empathy uh, is, I mean, how are you defining it? I sometimes define it as resonating with the experience of others. Yeah, this is an um, interesting thing. It's often confl- Empathy is often conflated or confused with compassion, but mm-hmm. this really is a kind of resonance at the physical level, at the emotional level, and cognitively with another. And it's as though we expand our subjectivity. Mm-hmm. to include the identity of another in a, a, a kind of intimate way or we're in, you know, we're vibing together. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And um, empathy is important. I, I write in the book something like a, a world without empathy is a world where we're dead to each other. Mm-hmm. But also, um, if our empathy isn't regulated, if we over-identify too much, um, we can be overwhelmed and one of the examples I cite, um, you know, we know this from, uh, you know, emotional empathy, which is pretty familiar to most of us. But um, mm-hmm. I, I cite the example of cognitive empathy. At least I think I do. I, I use it in my talks uh, quite often, where um, the all these good people in Germany, um, who I'm sure were principled, you know, one day began to look out of Hitler's eyes and mm. think like him. And um, almost as though they were being brainwashed and they took his perspective and then turned away. Jews mm. and gypsies and homosexuals and, you know, 
various populations that were being sent into the camps. And that's a, a, a kind of, that's where empathy can go wrong, cognitive mm-hmm. empathy. Or mm-hmm. emotional empathy, where, you know, we're so identified with the suffering of our patient that we ourselves get overwhelmed. Mm-hmm. Or physical empathy, where we're feeling the pain of another, or like uh, the, there's a very interesting uh, type of uh, individual they're called the mirror touch synesthetes. These are people who have deep somatic empathy with others. So they're getting all of this information at the physical level and um, usually experience overwhelm mm-hmm. in relation to the suffering of others or whatever the physical experience is of others. But it's really important, but at the same time, um, it has to be regulated. Mm-hmm. And there's some people who just naturally regulate it. I, I'm probably not one of those. <laughs> <laughs> Therefore, there are tools in order to learn how to do it. Exactly. Yeah. This is where practice really uh, is, uh, you know, I mean, it's one of the reasons I think that uh, I do practice um, so in such a uh, uh, determined way and enthusiastic way because um, uh, I tend to be oversensitive and over-responsive uh, and reactive. Mm-hmm. And, um, this is, you know, what practice does. It's allowed me to see things from another perspective, to reframe things, to have a metacognitive perspective, for example. Mm-hmm. It's allowed me to downregulate in a really gentle way when I'm getting ungrounded and about to lose it. And those are skills that have all come out of meditation. Mm. That's great. Here's a, a paragraph from you. When we identify too strongly with someone who's suffering... Our emotions can push us over the edge into distress that might mirror the anguish of those whom we are trying to serve. If our experience of his or her suffering overwhelms us, empathic distress can also cause us to go numb, to abandon others in an attempt to protect ourselves from suffering too heavy to bear, and to experience symptoms of stress and burnout. Here we have it. You know, I've I've been, because I do so much work, as you know, as you do, with caregivers of different kinds, and I've seen kind of the push toward empathy training in the country, which I think is fabulous because, you know, it certainly can be a cold, cruel country or, or situation for people. And uh, and yet the people I work with in those contexts have an enormous amount of empathy, but they're suffering in other ways. Yeah. So, Sharon, I'd love to ask you, um, yeah. you know, what kind of approaches do you feel would um, – in, in your experience, help people get grounded and um, get regulated. Well, it's it, someone else. Uh-huh. Some of it, a, quite a great deal of it, has to do with the concept of balance. You know, so one aspect of balance is compassion for yourself as well as for someone else, um, and one aspect of it is, uh, you know, sometimes uh, for very sensitive people. You know, as you described yourself to be, there's also there's a sneaky little thought that comes in that you are responsible for fixing it all. It's up to you, and so not only does the suffering kind of wash through you, but it lands. Um, and you know, often there's some kind of thinking pattern. It doesn't have to be that, but it's often that. 
uh, there's something going on so that that suffering is being absorbed like you're a sponge. And, and so we learn certain tools to get some degree of balance. And what's very difficult for people often in those professions or in those, you know, maybe personal caregiving role, may not be professional, um, in those roles is to realize it's okay to have compassion for yourself, that this isn't like being weak or, or lazy. You know, this is a very important balance. I think that's, um, I think being able to um, respect uh, your own limits. I know one of the mm -hmm. phrases that you shared with me years ago, which I teach people all the time, may I see my own limits with compassion just mm -hmm. as I view the suffering of others. Mm -hmm. And just, you know, being able to rest in a phrase like that, which has a reality to it that is healing for others and for ourselves. You know, when you see someone who um, just ignores uh, their health, uh, ignores their um, own, uh, uh, the things that they care about in the world, mm -hmm. um, in the course of taking care of others, that's not good. Mm -hmm. That's really not good. So I think, you know, this brings us back not only to uh, issues around empathic distress, but also, you know, to pathological altruism. Because, you know, one of the things about the edge states that I think is important is that they um, mirror each other, or not mirror, they're interconnected. So, you know, this would be uh, the other edge states are, are integrity, uh, respect, and um uh, engagement. Uh, engagement. And, <clears throat> you know, integrity, respect, engagement are also embedded in altruism and empathy. Mm -hmm. uh, you have this kind of incredible quotation about integrity. You say, without integrity, our freedom is compromised. I've seen that integrity can have a fragile edge, perhaps more fragile than that of the other edge states. By this I mean that it often takes an experience of moral anguish, a push, a slip, or a tumble over the edge into the chasm of suffering to affirm or reveal integrity. I mean, that's amazing and, and very intense, too. Yeah, I, you know, most of the people whom I know who uh, have what I consider to be high integrity have arrived at that integrity not because they've been intact the whole way, mm -hmm. but that they've been exposed to suffering, um, maybe not of their own doing. Like Fannie Lou Hamer, I you know cite her life as an example who was exposed deeply to moral suffering as she was um, the subject of uh, egregious racism, and of course you know everybody around her was. Um, and that brought her integrity um, into high relief in, you know, her work in the civil rights movement. Mm -hmm. But also sometimes our integrity is mo mobilized by um, experiencing uh, various forms of moral suffering. Mm -hmm. And um, in the book, I define four areas of uh, moral suffering, which are uh, moral distress, which is, you know, when we encounter a situation where harm is present, we see a pathway out of that harm, but we can't pursue that pathway. 
Mm-hmm. And so we experience, we suffer, and we suffer morally um, because we know that it could be different. And then there's moral injury when um, we are witness to or engage in behaviors that cause suffering to others. And um, um, being witness to or um, uh, engaging in, in those behaviors, like, for example, uh, moral injuries well documented in the military, um, causes one to feel uh, deep shame. Mm-hmm. And um, I cite the story of my father, who I believe, uh, unbeknownst to me and my sister, the sources of his um, depression mm-hmm. um, and it wasn't really until he was dying that we became aware of uh, how deep his moral suffering was in relation to being a, a combatant in the Second World War. Mm-hmm. And on this you know, big LST, and he was the commander, and um, he was part of a fleet, and uh, they took down a bunch of planes and killed a bunch of their men by friendly fire. And just all came out as my dad was dying. Mm. So, um, wow, really stopped me. And then moral outrage. Um, I do a you know big section in the book on moral outrage um, because I, I'm experiencing quite a bit of it right now. Actually, <laughs> what a timely topic! <laughs> oh my gosh, uh, I, you know I have to laugh, but it's not funny. <laughs> um, it's you know the. Our political situation is so uh, compromised, and uh, players in um, uh, our current political arena, you know, models um, really the worst in the human psyche. Mm. And so, you know, just like in the 60s, we were, uh, people my age, a lot of us were involved in the civil rights and anti-war movement, and we, you know, we experienced moral outrage. We wanted to change the system. We didn't agree with the politics of the time, and we were we realized we lived in a racist culture, mm-hmm. and that we lived in a culture which valued violence. And so, you know, it's like we're in the '60s revisited mm-hmm. here. I mean, you know, we're on the nuclear brink. You, know, you just can't believe. Trump pulled out of this agreement today, mm. and um, you you know you experience moral outrage, and moral outrage that's episodic or reactive, I think, is not a bad thing, because it can push you to um, hold people accountable, or it can push you into action, which mm-hmm. is transformative. But you know, some of my good friends suffer from chronic moral mm-hmm. outrage, mm-hmm. and it's their kind of. You know, that's the chord. They uh, are constantly playing in the world, and, you know, one goes deaf after a while. Mm. And it's unpleasant to experience because it's Mm -hmm. filled with shame and blame. Mm -hmm. And, you know, moral outrage is a combination of anger and disgust. It's not pleasant to experience, but it's, you know, a little dose isn't bad. (laughs) Wakes us up. It does wake us up. It does wake us up. But too much wolf can be, you know, uh, addictive. So did you cover all four of... uh... No, the the last one, Sharon, I actually, um, it wasn't anything I'd written about until just before I turned the book in. 
And I went to see the film about James Baldwin called mm-hmm. I'm Not Your Negro. And I have to tell you, I was just like, wow, because he identified moral apathy. Mm. And I suddenly um, realized that uh, I had been raised in a bubble of privilege to the extent that uh, until I was, um, you know, 17, 16, 17, 18, I wasn't really aware of how deep the racism ran in our community. Mm And so, you know, there's moral apathy that is just ignorance. There's uh, moral kind of moral apathy where um, we uh, consciously turn away from suffering. Mm-hmm. Um, and there's moral apathy when we're just um, not in a bubble bubble of privilege. We're not consciously turning away from uh, situations of harm, but um, when we just go numb, we're just dead. Mm. And that often, that latter kind of moral apathy often is the case for um, those people who experience too much uh, empathic distress mm-hmm. and go numb in relation to empathy. Mm. So, so far we've talked about um, altruism, empathy, and integrity. Do you think it's all similar tools to bring us, I don't know if it's bring us back from the edge or bring us from the more toxic forms of these states to the more kind of free-flowing generative forms of these states? You know, um, one of the things that I I learned, um, which was for me staggering, Sharon, Mm -hmm. was that there is um, one means one powerful way that the fraught side of these edge states can be transformed into the healthy expression. Mm. And um, that is compassion. Mm. And um, when I, you know, I had this insight, um, you know, in a, uh, it's kind of like a a sort of blinding flash. Mm. (laughs) When I realized um, I was working on this map of compassion, realizing that it's not easy to train others in compassion, that where many of the people that I encounter are literally suffering from a deficit of compassion. Mm. And um, of course, if they're suffering from a deficit of compassion, those who are not receiving compassion also are suffering. And I began to map out compassion, and I realized that compassion is actually made of non-compassion elements. Mm. And um, those elements include our our capacity literally to lend attention to another, our our capacity to attend to another, Mm -hmm. to present another. And it also includes um, pro-social aspects, including loving kindness Mm -hmm. and equanimity. And it also includes insight, which, you know, reflect, uh, sorry, um, our, our intentions, which reflect our moral character. Mm. And compassion also includes insight. Um, it, it includes the wisdom dimension, you know, insight into, yes, we're all one, but there's also distinction between self and other and all beings, you know, no matter how 
deluded they are, they still want to be happy. Mm. And that, um, you know, we, in compassion, we do the best that we can, but um, we can't be attached to outcome mm. because that can produce more suffering. And insight also allows us to have a metacognitive perspective to actually stand outside of our reactive response and to see things with, uh, you know, a greater depth of field. Mm-hmm. And then embodiment um, is part of the process of compassion. Mm-hmm. You know, it involves action. So I, I um, as I did this big mapping and this, uh, I realized, wow, compassion is a complex dynamical system. Mm-hmm. The emergent process of these suite of qualities when they interact with each other is compassion. Mm. And then I began to look at this in relation to um, altruism, empathy, integrity, respect, and engagement, and also the fraught sides of these five mm-hmm. edge states. And I realized, oh, these fraught aspects of the best in the human heart mm-hmm. um, can be transformed into the direction of health through exactly the qualities that are uh, composed in compassion. That's fantastic. Um, I remember seeing uh, the Vietnamese Zen teacher Thich Nhat Hanh on a stage in New York once, and uh, he pointed to like a sunflower, and he said, now see all the non-sunflower elements that make up the sunflower? And you realize, oh, yeah, you know, in any instance, we can go deeper into causes and conditions, and we can learn more about our lives, actually, that way. Well, um, as you know, I was a student of Thai, yeah, yeah. so needless to say, that perspective that Thai shared in so many wonderful ways um, influenced my, my thinking. And definitely, um, I, I learned so much from him in the years I practiced with him. That's great. And Very, weren't we lucky to have such, so many teachers that were... Oh, it's so true, Sharon. Yeah. We, we have lived in a, a good time when, um, you know, been, we've been able to experience Thai and, of course, His Holiness the Dalai yeah, Lama yeah. and Sokni Rinpoche and Mingyur Rinpoche and you know, so many um, beautiful, wise, uh, yeah, wise teachers. What a blessing. You are among that list. Oh, you are so sweet. I want to finish our two other qualities, though, so before we just have a love fest with each other. So respect. Um, here's the quote. Respect and disrespect are closely linked with power dynamics, power with and power over. Do you want to say something about that? Well, you know, um, this actually, this whole area got um, very open for me in the uh, sharing that this uh, nurse, who's a good friend of mine, a student of mine, Jan Janner, she did her chaplaincy thesis. She did her chaplaincy training at UPI, and she did her thesis on what what uh, is called um, horizontal hostility. Hmm. And, uh, you know, another way we call it is bullying. Hmm. What Jan um, learned is that some 15 to 20 percent of nurses actually leave nursing because They've been bullied by their peers. Mm. And 
you know, I also, because of my childhood experience, um, where I was uh, quite ill as a child and then a little bit skinnier and littler than other people, was mm-hmm. um, bullied quite a bit as a child. And um, then, of course, you know, my experience as a woman um, mm. has subjected me to uh, a lot of bullying, mm-hmm. particularly as I, you know, found myself in worlds that were uh, male-dominated, like academia, mm-hmm. and then, of course, uh, forgive me, all my Buddhist friends, but Buddhism. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and, you know, as a, um, a female practitioner in the Buddhist context. Mm-hmm. And so I began to look at horizontal hostility um, and vertical violence. And the horizontal hostility thing um, also, uh, I was part of the feminist movement in the 70s, and an incredible woman who was really the mother of the uh, feminist movement, Florence Kennedy, Flo Kennedy, who um, talked about this kind of harm that peers... uh, subject others to, other peers, you know, their peers to. And, um, you know, I realized, wow, that is, um, that is something uh, that is uh, really uh, rampant in our society. And also vertical violence, where there's top-down violence, you know, where, you know, a teacher will abuse a kid or mm-hmm. where a parent will put down a, their child or where... Um, or bottom-up uh, vertical violence, where a patient will be abusive to a nurse. Mm-hmm. So I I unpack that to you know uh, as as deeply I, as I was able because I feel we're right now in a, a kind of crisis of respect in our culture mm-hmm. and crisis of disrespect, and that uh, it was helpful for me to actually thread through what respect is and um, how it breaks down and how it harms when it moves into disrespect. Wow. Thank you so much. And then just the last one, engagement. (laughs) When our engagement gets off balance and our work seems driven by fear, escapism, or compulsion, we are vulnerable vulnerable to burnout. We're back in burnout. That bleak experience of fatigue, pessimism, cynicism, and even physical illness – accompanied by the sense that our work is of little or no benefit to anyone, including ourselves. Well, there you got it. (laughs) uh, I I think engagement is um, really, uh, you know, your life and my life is, uh, you know, they're examples of um, wholehearted engagement. Mm -hmm. You know, it's just... um, Totally loving what one does and finding meaning uh, in in the work that we do and doing it enthusiastically. But I also I just you know I'll confess and probably you might confess, but there's times I overdo it, mm-hmm. and um, there's times when there's a kind of addictive quality uh, to work, the work that I do, um, where I'm sort of obsessed and possessed. Mm-hmm. And, uh, so. I don't think I've ever been uh, burned out in the classical sense, mm-hmm. but I've sure uh, danced around the edge of it often enough. Mm. How about you? Oh, I think I've probably been actually in it. Um, I've certainly been on the edge, but 
Um, yeah, I, I mean, I think there have been times when I just could not see that uh, there was a whole other kind of balance needed. But I do find that um, things kind of tend to come back. You know, there's some homeostasis or something that one's whole system seems to want. And uh, over time, there's there's just that clarity. But the, the real core of that is knowing that it's okay, mm-hmm. you know, to seek balance. And, and I've seen many times that that um, can be very unpopular with somebody, you know, like I just have to give and give and give and give and give. Um, and it is too much. It's just way too much at some points. Well, you know, what I hope is that this book um, is not only of service to others. And, you know, we all, uh, or at least most of us, fall over the edge. Mm-hmm. Um, and, you know, one of the points I make in the book, Sharon, is that um, uh, somehow, you know, making our way back from the uh, desolate landscape mm-hmm. that are uh, the the landscapes that these fraught side of the edge states represent um, back to the high side of these edge states mm-hmm. um, actually builds strength, strength of character and resilience. And um, I would say every time I've gone over the edge has been, you know, uh, in the long run, I've learned so much. And I feel a kind of appreciation for whatever it was that um, – drew me uh, out of the sense of futility and back into um, making my way uh, out of the depths, the slaw of despond, if you will, mm-hmm. um, into uh, a, a life of engagement. That's fabulous. Roshi, thank you so much. I really oh. uh, look forward to seeing you and, um, you know, going deeper and deeper always in, into this this great book and, and all the work that you're doing. So thank you. I'm just um, wonderful. Love you, and um, thank you for everything you do, Sharon. Thank you. See you soon. Okay, dear. Bye-bye. Bye-bye. Thank you so much for speaking with me today. Your work continues to have such an incredible impact in the world, and I'm thrilled for your new book to reach people everywhere. You can learn more about Roshi Joan and her many offerings at www.upaya.org. And I encourage you to go out and get a copy of Standing at the Edge today. Thank you for listening. For more information about Sharon's many offerings and her teaching schedule, please visit her website at SharonSalzberg.com.